The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. in this morning. Um, forgive me for this zero to 60 approach that I'm about to take. Uh, I hope I hope it's okay. Hope it makes sense. Um, but wow, there is just a lot in front of us. So as we get to this text, I want us to think about something as we, as we approach our text. I believe that we are able to trace all sin, all of it, to an inappropriate love of ourselves over God and others. An elevation of ourselves, a love of ourselves above, above all others. And, and I really believe that. I want to push this just a little deeper before we, before we look at, at our text this morning. And, and I believe that this is going to play out in three kind of general ways. And sometimes it plays out in three, in, in multiple ways at one time, okay? Uh, the first way that we see this is, is self-promotion. Self-promotion means self-advancement, self-hype. This is when we really try to make ourselves look good. Where we try to make ourselves, we project ourselves in certain ways. We seek to really move forward our own agendas over others, um, it's about me and mine and getting what's mine and getting all I can and, and getting ahead or appearing or projecting like, man, I've got it all together. It's self-promoting. I am good. I am healthy. I am wealthy. I am successful. It's that projecting. It's self-promotion, self-promotion. And what it does is it seeks, really, if you strip it all away, to take ourselves and place ourselves at the center. That's what self-promotion does. Now, sometimes this is super obvious. Um, it can be. It's obvious when someone around you is really self-promoting. Sometimes people are just, you, you see it and you're just like, come on, like, just stop it. Just stop it. But other times, it's not that obvious. At times... Some of us have gotten really good at being subtle at this, uh, very subtle. But listen, it is no less destructive, no less destructive. Here's the hard question for this one, this first one, self-promoting. How much of our lives, how much of your decisions, how many of your conversations are fueled by some degree of self-promotion? Don't answer this out loud, but answer it. How much? How, how much? This is a really tough question. And, and I want to I be, one more thing I'll say about this is it's easy to Christianize this. This, this one, this sin, this self-promotion. Scripturally, just take a look at the Pharisees. They're a great example of this. And they're, they're praying to where everyone can hear them. They are doing their religious stuff where everyone can see them and think they are great. They got it together. Um, that people would be drawn to them and how awesome, that awesome they, they, they are. Um, but it's not just them scripturally. It's not just them back then. We easily do the same thing. 
in the church, we can project like we are mature. We got this. We're self-sufficient. Me and Jesus, I know Jesus better than anyone else. I'm good. Like we can, we can project that we have it all together, high and mighty, and we can even demonstrate, just like the Pharisees did, our holiness by our deep theological words that we use when we pray in public. Just be honest with ourselves here. Self-promotion, even if it's Christianized. Self-promotion. Um, it's easy that this kind of thing seeps into the church. So uh, ask again, how many of your conversations, how much of your life, how many of your decisions are fueled by, motivated by some degree of self-promotion? Number one. Number two, second way that this, this elevated self kind of rears its ugly head is self-protection. self Protection. This is the tendency to want to protect ourselves above all else. Um, to shield ourselves, to withdraw away. Safe, 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 safe. We pray for safety all the time. Like it's when safety becomes our thing. Self-protection. I, I love safety, don't get me wrong. Um, but hear me, when with self-promotion, the first one, you can generally trace that back to pride. It's fueled by pride. With this one, self-protection, generally, it can be traced back to fear. Fear, some, some level of fear. It's easy, again, to justify this, to Christianize this. And, and, but at the core, it's the same as self-promotion. It's ultimately placing ourselves at the center. That's what it ultimately is. Now, just like self-promotion, there are certain versions of this that are very obvious. Like for those who have just said, peace out, head for the hills. Or those who are just insane hoarders. Like, no, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. I'm not going to give. because. Um, but it's not always that obvious. It can be far more subtle. Um, and here's, here's where it can lead us. Instead of us asking the question, God, what would you have me do? God, where would you have me go? Uh, God, what are you calling me to do in my church? God, what are you calling me to do in my community? Instead of those questions, the sin of self-protection kind of creeps in, and, and we start to ask what ifs. What if? What if I get hurt? What if I need those resources? What if? Um, we become the center of our concern, and we become... Um, and so what that does is it leads us to have this mantra of what if on everything. And let me just tell you, it's a miserable way to live a life. It's an absolutely miserable way. And yet in the church, it's still this common temptation. So the same questions. How many of our decisions, how many of, of what we do, how much of, how much of our conversations are fueled by some degree of self-protection? Um, I want to give you an example of how easy this is to Christianize, okay? Uh, I won't be long here, but if you think about evangelism, let's just take that one. How many know, you know, evangelism's a good thing. You're commanded to do this. It's a good thing. It is a good thing to share the gospel. It is a God thing. You were commanded to do that, right? Good thing. Both, of the, both self-promotion and self-protection, though, can rear their ugly heads in evangelism, can't they? Let's, let's Christianize these. Let's see how it works out. Here's the reality. You're called to share the gospel because your God loves you 
You're called to share the gospel because he demonstrated his great love for you. We're supposed to share the gospel to be obedient to what he has called us to do. We're supposed to share the gospel because we love our neighbor and we want to see them know and, 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 and look to Jesus. That's why we share the gospel. Supposed to. Now let's, let's talk about what happens when self-promotion creeps in. We may share the gospel, but we do it so that others can see how awesome we are, how bold we are, how mature and faithful and obedient we are. Right? Even the act of evangelism can be done from a place of sin and a sinful heart. To do the right thing with the wrong heart, Jesus is very clear on that one. And even, even evangelism, when we make it about ourselves and the love of ourselves and where we place ourselves in the center, sure, God can use it, but God uses donkeys, right? He can use it, but it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. And at the same time, other side, what happens when self-protection creeps in? Well, we, we know we're called to share the gospel. What, what this could lead us to do is kind of just shy away, shy away and to say, you know what? You know, I'm just going to become friends, and I'm just going to, to let that develop. We're going to see how the gospel kind of comes in. And here's the problem. I, I love that. Be friends. But what, what happens, what can happen is that years and years and years and years go by, and they've never heard the gospel from your lips. Ever. Why? Because of self-protection. You're asking the what-if question. What if they reject me? What if it's awkward? What if I stand there and I'm, duh, I don't know what to say? What if that happens? And so these what if self-protection questions kind of creep in. At the core, both of these share something in common, an overinflated view of you. Self-promotion, self-protection. There's one more. I'm going to be quicker with this one. Uh, self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. So this is when our pleasure is at our center. When what is it that makes me happy? That's what I want. What is it that brings me the most pleasure? So in self-promotion, we see pride at the center. In self-protection, we see fear at the center. Church, in self-indulgence, what's at the center? Well, it's, it's lust, it's gluttony, it's laziness, it's all those things. That's the center. That one is often easier to spot in the church. I mean, it's harder to Christianize. Um, but it can also be subtle because what it works out with is, is, is this obsession that we might have with comfort. That's self-indulgence. This obsession. I like comfort. I do. Um, but it, whereas self-protection is obsessed with safety, self-indulgence is obsessed with comfort. And I got to ask how many of our decisions are made how much of our actions are made fueled by or somehow affected by our desire, first and foremost, to be comfortable? Focused on comfort. Listen, all these things, self-promotion, self-protection, self-indulgent, common thread is self. Self-love. And I got to tell you, it's a miserable life to live it is an absolutely miserable life to live when you place you at the center because you're not designed to wear that weight. You're not created to wear that weight. And so it is uncomfortable for you to wear that weight. 
We're not designed this way. It is empty. You were made by your God, for your God, to bring him glory, and you were made for each other. And self-promotion, self-protection, self-indulgence is anti-gospel. Anti-gospel, antithetical to the gospel of Jesus, Jesus who emptied himself and called you to follow him. An emptying of ourselves. Now, I wanted to put this before you before we get to Romans 13. And um, there's this uh, old Latin phrase. This is, you're not going to be quizzed on this. I have a reason for sharing this. But the phrase is incurvatus in si. And what that means, it's an old phrase, simply means turned in on itself. And throughout the ages, this is the phrase that was, dis- that was used to describe when people are turned in on themselves. Instead of outward to God and others, they're turned in on itself. Why do I bring up this obscure Latin phrase? Isn't Latin dead? Why do we need to know it? The reason why that I bring this up, that's exactly the point actually, is to show you that this tendency that you feel towards navel gazing, turning inward, that tendency that you feel, listen, is not new. There's a dead language that had a catchphrase for it. This is not new. Like the enemy is, is, is cunning and all of that, but he doesn't necessarily, he's not all that creative in the way he attacks you. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing, nothing new. This, this tendency to navel gaze here. And so with all that being said, I want us to look at Romans 13. We're gonna be looking at eight to 10. Um, Paul says this, he says, Oh, no one, anything except to love each other. Pause here. Quick note here. Um, I want to place this back into our context here just, just a bit. Um, how many know that as Paul wrote this text, he did not write it with the, the, the subheadings that you see in your translation? He didn't write those. Those are added later to help us. How many know that he didn't even write in chapter and verse? That was added later. And I am so grateful that those were added. It helps me find my place. It'd be really hard to like get us all to preach through this if we couldn't find where we were, right? So this helps us. It's, it's so good, and I, and I love that. But sometimes the divisions that are placed there to help us can get in the way or cause us to see unnecessary breaks. This is one, I think, a good example, a decent example of this, because verse 8 is actually a bridge in this text. So in the text that came before it, I want you to notice all of the owing language. You have pay all um, what is owed to them, taxes to whom are owed, revenue and respect and honor to whom is owed. And then right out of that, Paul then says, owe no one anything except to love each other. What Paul is doing is bridging. He's linking. What he's, what he's doing is he's linking our civil responsibilities that we've talked about the last three weeks. He's linking our responsibilities to each other in community. He is linking even our responsibilities to our government that we see in the first seven verses of 13. He's linking all of that together, and he's linking it to love. He's tying it here to love. And and to be clear, this is self-love, or not self-love. This is love of neighbor. He says, owe no one anything except what? To love each other. To love each other. And then listen to this massive statement. For the one who loves another has 
fulfilled the law. Now, for the Jew in this time, the scholars of the Hebrew text, there are 613 laws. For us today, we have all kinds of laws, we have all kinds of regulations, we have all kinds of responsibilities that we live by in our community. And what Paul is saying here, take all of those, like take it all, all of them, the one who loves another fulfills them, fulfills them. You want to fulfill the laws of the land, love one another. You want to fulfill the laws of God, the law of God, love one another. In this next couple verses, I want to kind of read them straight through, and then we'll, we'll, we'll unpack, because um, I want us to see these things. I mean, Paul is so clear here. Here's what he says, verse 9, for the commandments, that's specifically the, referencing the Ten Commandments. He's drawing our focus to the Ten Commandments. In fact, he brings out a couple of them. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet. So four commandments by name, but then he, then he says, and any other commandment. So see what he did there. He's, he's, these four are not exclusive. He's any other. Takes the whole of the commandments, and then he says, look, they are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the ten, love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore fulfilling, or therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. All right, let's make some important observations here. First, I want to just pull out this, this, this phrase, love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, it's not just about the behavior, the works, the obedience in and of itself. It's not just about that. Because it's possible to do the right things, to be obedient to what the law says, to even do really good things, and to do it in sin. To do them in a way that does not bring glory and honor to God, just ask the Pharisees. This was kind of their thing in Scripture. Their, the behaviors and the actions, our obedience, our works must flow from our heart. And guess what? Our God is concerned chiefly about our heart. Then in our actions flow from that. In other words, our God is not just concerned about you doing the right thing. He pushes deeper into your motivation. The why. Right motivation. And our motivation must be love. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 13, where he's talking about love, and he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy, annoying, clanging symbol. Like just picture someone sitting here just right now, just going, gah, gah, gah. that's the picture Scripture gives for that. He says, if I have all the prophetic powers and mysteries and knowledge is all mine and faith and all of that, but I have not love. He says, I am nothing. He says, if I give it all away and deliver my body to be burned, that's, a, I mean, good thing. But I have not love. I gain nothing, Paul says. What is that? He's pushing here to the heart. Paul is getting us to see, look, you might attempt to do all the right things. You might attempt to do all the commandments, but without love, you are a noisy, annoying symbol and nothing. 
or to use the words of Jesus, Matthew 23. Uh, he, he, he even, he's much harsher than a clinging symbol. He says, you're a whitewashed tomb. He says, you look pretty on the outside. But man, there's death and nasty, stinky decay on the inside. Without love, that is what we become. And this is why legalism, by the way, is such an affront to the gospel. This is, this is why God poured out and demonstrated his love for us through Jesus Christ, as we talked about, as we went to the tables. He loved us first, and now in Christ, we're called to love each other. And, and let me just state this kind of as clear as I can. You can do all the right things, say all the right things, and look like on the outside, everything is put together. You can obey each of the commandments, but if it's motivated by self, self-promotion, self-protection, self-indulgence, self-love. It is nothing but empty religious motions that does not please our God. So you might fool a lot of people around you. Chances are you will, um, but you will not fool God. He sees your heart. He knows your heart, and this is why, church, we need the gospel. This is why the gospel is the only answer to this, because your God knows you, knows all of you, knows your heart, sees your heart. There is nowhere, church, for you to hide. There is no right action for you to hide behind. There is nowhere. You can't hide behind the appearance of godliness, the appearance of holiness. We can't hide. He sees you. He sees all of you, and we all fall short of the glory of God. All of us. We fail to do the things we should, but more importantly, we fail to love the way we should. And he sees it. This is why Christ came and he never failed to love perfectly. This is why he, he came and he loved the way that we could never love. He did it. He accomplished it. And now in Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. And I am not just talking about those sins when we fail to obey the things and fail to do things or, or when we do things we shouldn't. That is absolutely true. But when I say forgiveness of sin, I am also talking about heart sins. When you don't love the way you should, your God cares about that. As we walk in, as we know that forgiveness, then we're able to walk in love for others. This is why the gospel is the only answer to this. Now, will we love others perfectly? No, not yet. Are we being perfected? Yes. Through the spirit, we are. This is why the gospel is so good. And Paul says, look at all the commandments. He says, they are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't want us to miss something. I want to I just pull something out here real quick. Um, this is not the first time scripture has said this. In fact, Paul is restating Jesus' words in saying this. Um, in Matthew, Mark, the book of Luke, I'm going to read from Matthew because he comes first in our Bibles. Um, and he's, the, he's approached by Pharisees, and, and um, they come to him, they try to test him, and they, they ask in 22, verse 36, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds to them and says, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, verse 39, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And then verse, the last verse in that section, verse 40, he says, on these two commandments, depend all the law and all the prophets. In other words, that's it. <laughs> the heart of it all. This is the fulfillment of the law, he, he says. And so when Paul says this in Romans 13, it is not new. It comes from Jesus' own words. And guess what? How cool is this? Those words didn't start with Jesus. What Jesus is doing is quoting the Old Testament. Now, I could say it did start with Jesus because he is God, but it didn't start in Matthew. I'll say it that way. When Jesus says you should love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, that's Deuteronomy, church. That's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, hear the Lord of God, our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus is quoting that. When he says you should love your neighbor as yourself, guess what? That's Leviticus 19, church. When, when he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Jesus is quoting this. Why am I saying this? Why am I bringing this up? Because this is not a new thing. This is not... This has always been the thing. <laughs> love. This is not a New Testament thing, a for them back then thing, for us to No, this has always been. This is why the old Christmas hymn that we sing, O Holy Night, a few weeks ago, it's almost the end of January now, so a month ago, we gathered outside and we sang this hymn. And, and I'm, I'm reminded, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. This is not new. This is the way. This is God's way. It has always been this way. His law is love, and so the fulfillment of the law is love, and there is no fulfillment of the law apart from love. Let's make a second observation here. Um, love your neighbor as yourselves. So this, we live in an age where this has become real distorted. And um, I want to push on this because we live in this age of self-care. And uh, we love self-care. And, and don't hear me wrong here. I, um, some of the ideas of self-care are, are good, okay? They're good. Um, it's wise and it's godly to take care of yourself. Right? To, to, your body is a gift. It's a temple, the scripture says. It's wise to care for it. Why is it wise to care for it? So that as much as it depends on you, that you are able to be of sharp mind and sharp in body, that you can serve God and others to the most excellent level as possible. That I am all in, church, on that kind of self-care. Okay? All in. I, I think it's stewardship, honestly, that you care for what God has given you, all in. But there's a line when uh, self-care for the sake of godliness becomes self-care for the sake of selfishness. There's a line there. And again, like all things, it, co it really comes down to the heart. It comes down to love. Um, there's a difference when self-care is motivated by self-love. And we have missed it. And that is a slippery path to a life of misery. However, when self-care is motivated by love of God and others, self-care ceases to be selfish and it becomes a form of training for godliness. That's awesome. I want to be about that kind. 
of self-care. Um, at the heart of it, though, is, is love. And I say, the reason I say this is because we live in this, this really individualistic culture, obsessed with self-care. More specifically, I'm just going to call it out, obsessed with self-love. We're obsessed with this. And when we hear love your neighbor as yourself, it, it becomes challenging for, for many of us to, to think through this. And, there's, and what, what we can hear from this and is, I need to love my neighbor as myself. So that means I need to really love myself. Because how am I going to love others if I don't love myself? Right? You hear that all over our culture. Um, and, and it's kind of like that common airline saying that says you need to put the mask on you. You put the mask on yourself before you put it on others. I hear this all the time. Um, and listen, it's great advice for an airline emergency. It's fantastic advice. Like, it's wonderful. Do that. Do it. Here's the problem, though. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel tells you, look, God has saved you, and he put the mask on you. He has done that work, and now, because that work has been done for you, you are able now to pour yourself out for God and others. That is the gospel. The gospel tells us he has got you. He holds you in his hand. He loves you. And now from that place, we can stop living in fear, pride, self-promotion, all those things we talked about. And we can start living our life the way God has created us to to live. Um, One way to think about this, and this is really helpful for me, it kind of, it framed it well from, in my mind at least, Um, when I hear love my neighbor as myself, Listen, it is natural, biological, and instinctual for you to care for yourself. Like, to naturally protect yourself when something is hot. To, ah, pull back. That's natural. It's instinctual. You do that. You, you, you naturally want to win. You naturally want to make sure you have food. You naturally care for yourself. You naturally do these things. You don't have to teach this. Like, you don't have to, to, when we have babies, we don't have to teach them these things. It's baked into the cake, right? What if we instinctively cared for others the way that we instinctively care for ourselves? What if we protected and we sought after the protection and welfare of our neighbor the same way we do for us when we touch something hot? Where it is, we do it. What if others are just as important as we are in our minds and in our sight? By the way, this is why marriage is such a gift of sanctification. What if we live this way where it was instinctual, just as naturally as it is for us to make sure that we're good, that we would be fueled with that same instinct? to love our neighbor. Church, that is your calling. That is what Jesus did for you. That is what Jesus has called you into. At the core, as a believer in Jesus, that is what it means to be a new creation. Um, that we were once, and, and we've, we've talked about this a couple times this morning, we were once incapable of love, We were once dead in our sins and capable of love, and we have been loved by our God. 
We have been loved by our God. And, and now we, who ha- are loved by God, are now called to love him and others with the love of Jesus. We started out with these common tendencies of the self um, that surround the self, self-promotion that stems from pride, self-protection that stems from fear, self-indulgence that comes from a lot of places, lust, gluttony, laziness, those things. And we, we, all of these things have, have this love problem at the core, a misplaced love problem, an inflated self-love. And none, listen, they are simply not compatible. They are not compatible with the way of Jesus. This, this, is, this is where it gets hard. They're not compatible with the way of Jesus. And I do not say this lightly, and neither did Jesus In Luke 9, Jesus says, if anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Your calling, the Christian life, is not about your own promotion of yourself. It's not about self-promotion. It's not about self-protection, self-gratification, self-love. The Christian life is a life of denying ourselves for God and others. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice, self-emptying. It is about presenting ourselves, as Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice before our God, for the love of God and neighbor. And the craziest thing, this is the thing that just flips everything on its head. The craziest thing is that the life of emptying ourselves for love of God and neighbor That life is the single most fulfilling life that you can possibly live. That's it. Because it is in the emptying of ourselves that God fills us and we experience that. It is in the emptying of ourselves that we now live in the Imago Dei, the way we were created to live. Jesus says, if anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow me. Well, let's look at what Jesus did. He's asking us to follow him. What did Jesus do? How did Jesus live this out? Listen, I want to read a very popular text this morning. And and as I do, I want you to just take this in in light of what we have talked about. Philippians 2. Take this in. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than ourselves. Sounds really familiar. Let each of you look out not for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's that emptying of ourselves that we're talking about. Then he says this, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7 says, he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being bound in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus, the one who told you to follow him. And I don't want us to forget, I could have stopped there, but I can't, Uh, Verse 9, therefore God 
has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that, so that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we see throughout Scripture. This is the way of God. God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. God empties the one who is full on on himself and fills those who empty themselves. God switches this. This is why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he he starts with blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the ones who are persecuted. Why does he lay these out? What is he doing here? He's describing a life that's poured out. He's describing a life that is poured out for God and others. He's describing a life that is lived in love. And what does he say about that life? He says, that is the blessed life. That is what it is. That is who is truly blessed. Jesus demonstrated that life for us, and now he has called us to follow him. So this text, honestly, I think is pretty easy to understand in Romans 13. It can be tough to apply. And and so as we look at this, um, I want to to look at how this this text could apply. First and foremost, you might be here and feeling a bit the sting of conviction as we've walked through this. And if that is you, I encourage you that that conviction that you feel is God's love and mercy in your life. That, that sting of conviction is an invitation for you to come before your God who is faithful and just to forgive. We have not loved the way we ought to love. We have loved ourselves too much and we have loved others too little. And this is a time for repentance. And God is both faithful and he is just to forgive. And, and you could be here Feeling that, and this is just a call for us to come before him, first and foremost. In addition to that, I want to give you two encouragements before we close this morning. The first one, um, you hear me say this all the time, and that's good. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus daily. And that's not enough. Moment by moment. Look to Jesus. Remind yourself of the love of God that was demonstrated through Jesus. Remind yourself how Jesus loved you. Remind yourself how Jesus lived. Remind yourself of how Jesus lived this out and called you to follow him. This will not only, you know, remind you because you're forgetful, which you are, and it's good to remind you. But it's not only about your forgetfulness. This turning of our hearts to look to Jesus, you know what else it does, church? It stirs our affections. It stirs our affections and, and for God and for others. And this will help our motivation not come from self-promotion or self-protection. This will help our motivation come from the gospel, a response to him who loved us first. Right now, we look to Jesus before we go anywhere else. It starts there. The second um, 
I want to encourage you to ask and answer an easy, difficult question. What does love require of me? This question, first of all, is not original to me. This is one of those questions that someone asked me, and I can't for the life of me remember who it was, but it has stuck with me for years. What does love require of me? In every situation that you and I face, the question applies. What does love require of me? And and to be clear, I'm talking about self-love when I say this. I'm not saying, you know, what does it look like to love me really good right now? Not saying that. I'm talking about the love of God and the love of others. What does love require of me? Asking this question, I said it was easy, difficult. It is a really easy question to remember and to ask. But it can be so difficult to answer sometimes. It's costly. So we look to Jesus, and then we ask ourselves moment by moment, what does love require of me?